Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland. This week, we're talking tariffs, trade, and why the stock market seems pretty much unfazed by Donald Trump, despite all the uncertainty he brings. Plus, we'll discuss what we learned, and just as important, what we didn't learn from this week's primary election voting in Texas. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned at the end of the show for a shout out to one of our favorite Nerdcast fans. And one more note before we begin. We're taping this in the middle of the day on Thursday, March 8th, so it's all up to date as of then. So let's get started by welcoming Nerdcast regular and White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hey, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. And Ben White, our chief economic correspondent and the host of Politico Money. Hey, Ben. Charlie, it's great to be here. Ben, I can't begin to tell you how excited we are about this podcast cross-pollination here. <laughs> I feel like our corporate overlo- overlords are just feeling tingly about all the all synergy. The synergy is yeah. absolutely overwhelming well, me. I'm thrilled I, by I go it. on Ben's podcast a lot, exactly. so we can geek out about econ. So this was already happening. You just didn't know about it, Charlie. Oh, Welcome so to our Na- world. So Nancy's been on your show. I, I, don't, I never got an interview. I'm taking her away from you. <laughs> you have to understand taxes to go on Ben's show. Oh, come on. I could be <laughs> BS my way through that. I pay taxes. No, but seriously, Ben, this week, um, your story about why Wall Street isn't freaking out about Donald Trump, or, or at least not yet, was a flat-out great read. And it, it, what I liked was the art, obviously. It was very cool. But what I, what I really liked was it connected the dots in a really fascinating and accessible way. Also, I love the description uh, of someone else describing the uh, orange swan theory. Uh, so I would encourage our listeners, after you hear uh, the, the podcast, to take a look at Ben's story. All right. On to our first data point. Actually, data points plural, 25 and 10, as in 25% and 10%. Those are the tariffs that President Trump wants to impose on steel and aluminum imports. Ben, you did a great job of explaining all this on your podcast this week. Can you bring us up to speed on the tariffs, the blowback, and how all this led to the resignation of the president's top economic advisor this week? Yeah, it's been quite a saga, quite a lot of chaos inside the White House, inside the West Wing on this. And your caveat about when we're recording this is important. Uh, Thursday afternoon, there could be further news on this, but the basic parameters are known. Trump wants big tariffs on steel, big tariffs on aluminum to try and protect those domestic industries. And it obviously angered a lot of people. People on Capitol Hill, Republicans, but also within the White House. Gary Cohn, the National Economic Council director, spent a lot of time fighting very hard against this internally. He is a free trader, as are many Republicans, believes that if you put tariffs on these things, you wind up hurting domestic manufacturers who rely on aluminum steel. You 
wind up hurting consumers who pay more. So he did submit his resignation this week. This wasn't the only reason. Uh, Gary had been planning to leave for a while, but this was certainly the most frustrating thing for him, uh, that he could make the – he made these arguments over and over that this is a bad idea, this is bad for the economy, this is going to be bad uh, for the president and his agenda, and he just couldn't win the argument. Trump did what he wanted to do and what he sort of campaigned on from the start. So this was kind of a last straw for for Gary Cohn to say, look – I can't really be in a White House that's fighting trade wars, and he split. Trade wars aren't so bad. You understand what I mean by that? When we're down by 30 billion, 40 billion, 60 billion, 100 billion, the trade war hurts them, doesn't hurt us. So we'll see what happens. Nancy, another week, another high-profile departure from the White House. Can you put this in some context for us? Like, what does it mean for the decisions, decision-making in the White House now? Well, it means a couple things. Uh, when the news of the resignation first hit, just to give you a little bit of color, I was sitting at the White House and uh, at the press desk there, and there were a ton of reporters who just started like running for the press offices to try to confirm this. But I simultaneously was getting texts from you know former campaign people, people who didn't like Gary and his crew, people Republicans who felt like Gary represented. Um, Democrats basically being in a Republican administration, that he was too New York, he was too Wall Street, and that he didn't sort of have the ethos of Trump's campaign. I got a text from one of them that just said RIP and then a globe because, uh, you know, folks in Donald Trump's world like to refer to Gary and his crew as the globalists. And so this person was making the point like RIP globalists. Gary is was one of the last globalists in the White House. And there was a sense that his resignation would portend kind of a, a whole different chapter of economic policy in the Trump White House. But just to pull back from 30 to 30,000 feet, you know, there's just been so much turnover in the last month. We've seen Rob Porter, Hope Hicks, Josh Rafael, who was um, Ivanka and Jared's uh, spokesperson, uh, Reed Cordish, who worked for Jared on this innovation projects, uh, Gary Cohen. There's just been like so many people leaving. And there was a interesting there's interesting research out of Brookings, the Brookings Institution. There's a researcher there who has studied turnover in past administrations and the turnover in the Trump administration at this point, I feel like is 40, I think 46 percent uh, just in the first year or so or this first chunk of time. And that's absolutely record setting compared to uh, President George W. Bush, who actually had very little turnover. He had one of the most stable administrations sort of in the first two years. And even President Obama, you know, President Obama lost a few people. The White House counsel, for instance, uh, resigned after a year, the first one, and uh, he brought in Bob Bauer. There was a communications person, but nothing like this. And what we're seeing is uh, not a lot of Republicans who want to come into the administration. And so my question is, like, who is going to staff the White House? Ben, you did some reporting or actually did a lot of reporting on how that uh, resignation went down. Uh, What did you find? How did it unfold? Right. Well, as I said, it had been a while in coming. And based on the people I talked to about it, Gary Cohn had told the president a little bit over a month ago that he was going to leave at some point in early 2018. Uh, And he'd signal that to other people. There's been sort of a Gary Cohn death watch going on for several weeks now. So it wasn't a huge... Mostly in our inboxes, like every single day. (laughs) When is Gary leaving? Um, So that was was happening. That was uh, on the table. Then the president had asked him to stay through the Davos meeting, the big international gathering of bankers 
bankers and financiers in Switzerland uh, that Gary Cohn is a veteran of and the president uh, surprised some people by going to. So he stayed to help with that trip. He stayed to help with the State of the Union and the rollout of the infrastructure package. And there was no moment, I'm told, on this week when Gary uh, went to the president and said, you know, I can't take this anymore. Your tariff stuff is awful and I'm leaving. They didn't have a shouting match, anything like that. He just signaled to him that, you know, this is the time uh, I'm going to be resigning. And then the president put together a nice quote to release with his resignation. <clears throat> so there wasn't a, uh, you know, a come to Jesus meeting where he came to the president and said this has become untenable. But it was clear there's a lot of tension in the meetings on tariffs where you'd have Gary Cohn there. You'd have Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, Peter Navarro, the top trade advisor, arguing vociferously about this, sometimes even in shouting matches between Navarro and Cohn. Uh, so it was clear that they were getting to a point where this wouldn't be tenable anymore. And it happened to be this week when Gary lost the tariff battle. But the thing to remember about this is he didn't just walk out the door. He didn't throw his papers down and storm out. He's still there. He's still in the White House. At this moment, he's still fighting to tailor these tariffs in a way that will be less damaging in his view to the economy for these exemptions for certain countries and to make it so a trade war doesn't start. So he said he's leaving, but that's in a couple of weeks. He's there for whatever transition process might happen. And as Nancy says, uh, they're having a hard time finding somebody to fill the shoes. This is not a job that people are falling all over themselves to get because, you know, if you are a believer in the interconnectedness of the global economy, a believer in free trade working, uh, what you're going to do if you go into this White House is find yourself just fighting with the president, fighting with Ross, fighting with Navarro. That's not super enticing for a lot of people. Well, and, you know, one of the top people on uh, sort of the short list to replace Gary Cohen at the NEC is Larry Kudlow, who, uh, you know, worked in the Reagan White House, now is a you know business commentator in New York, well-known, uh, you know, really helped the Trump administration push through the tax cut package did a lot of sort of quiet lobbying on Capitol Hill, you know, knows a lot of people in the administration, is very well liked, is seen as a nice guy, very competent. But the fact of the matter is he is a free trader. Like he does not. Big time. Yeah, big time. And he does not agree with this new direction in the Trump administration. So he's one of the people that they're definitely eyeing. And before all this trade stuff broke out, I would have said, you know, he's going to have the job. But I'm not sure if they would want him now at this point. And I'm not sure he would take it given given the level of battle that's going on. Yeah, it's an open question. And there is a big uh, overarching thematic question here about the rest of President Trump's first term and who he picks uh, for NEC. Does he pick somebody who is in lockstep agreement with basically him, but also with Navarro and Ross and is a nationalist and anti-free trader, believes in protectionism? If he picks somebody like that, you will not have this debate within the administration. You will have a uniform set of advisors on the economy who all agree that the way to improve the lot of the American worker is through protectionism, is through tariffs, is through trying to protect domestic industry. Um, and that would be troubling, I think, to a lot of people in corporate America and on Wall Street. He, he sort of needs to, I think, pick somebody like Kudlow. It may not be Kudlow because in my reporting, I found that Trump is kind of irritated by all the negative stuff that Larry has said about the tariffs. But Wall Street certainly is looking for him to pick somebody who will continue this tension, who will continue to argue against big, sweeping, protectionist moves. And I think, and we'll get to the Wall Street stuff in my Wall Street story later, but you would see a negative market reaction if he were to pick somebody who is in lockstep agreement on protectionism. He, he probably needs to reach out to somebody who has a different viewpoint so you can continue to have that give and take in meetings. Nancy, tell us about the mood at the White House this week. Is it battle stations and DEFCON 1 over at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? So it's interesting. It's actually not like that. It's um, 
I would say it's more like a quiet resignation. Uh, it was so interesting being at the White House yesterday uh, because I feel like people have started to leave earlier than they used to. You know, people at the White House used to work till like 9 or 10 o'clock. You know, I saw some people leaving the building at 4.55. You know, some folks in the press shop were out of there at 5. You know, I talked to some other sources who were driving home at like 5.30. I feel like people are so frustrated by what they view as a chaotic environment, a rudderless environment, that they're kind of piecing out a little bit. You know, they're stepping back, maybe thinking about other jobs. But there's definitely a sense that, like, I don't want to get swept up in the hurricane of this. And I just want to correct something I said earlier. Um, a producer thankfully looked this up for me. The uh, percent of turnover – the turnover in the Trump White House is actually 43 percent according to this Brookings Institution study. So it's still super high. I just wanted to put that correct number out there. Uh, well, thank you for correcting that fake news. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't give people any yeah. ammunition, Charlie. Real time fact checking is a great podcast feature. So uh, I, I want to get back to this the White the White House environment because it, it fascinates me. So uh, so what you're saying then is is it's less and less like the Thunderdome environment that it used to be, and it's actually almost like a sleepy workplace. It's not sleepy. I mean, people are still. Um, like there's still a total sense of chaos. Like yesterday, for instance, just trying to get basic information about this tariff announcement was like a mind boggling, you know, hair pulling out task because you would talk to people and they'd be like, oh, yeah, Trump's going to make the tariff announcement on Thursday at 3.30. And then you talk to someone else who would say, don't say 3.30, but like definitely in the afternoon and definitely Thursday. And then you talk to someone else who would say Friday. And then also you would talk to people who said, well, actually, we're still writing the policy. Oh, and also the lawyers have to review it. And then I talked to someone last night who said, oh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be Thursday. And then Trump this morning tweeted, it's going to be Thursday at 3.30. So no one really has any idea what is happening. The policy is actually not ready. The lawyers haven't reviewed it. But Trump is like, we're going to go ahead and do some sort of announcement, even if it's just a photo op. And, and my read on it, just from people that I've covered, you know, from the last year or plus, is that this has been the case so many times where there's just this sense of like people don't really know what's going on. There's been high turnover from the start that I feel like people are just protecting themselves a little bit by trying not to get so wrapped up in it all the time. And people seem tired. You know, I've joked with people like, oh, I've joked with one source last week when Ben and I were writing a tariff story. A source sounded so exhausted. And I said, oh, wow, firing up the resume this weekend. And the source said, oh, it is that's already been done. <laughs> there are there are a lot of resumes there that are polished and ready to go. And Nancy's absolutely right. The level of kind of resignation and frustration. I was with a senior administration official this morning, of course, asked about the tariff announcement. He just shrugged his shoulders. He's like, I don't know. Probably will happen. I'm not sure it will happen. I mean, the thing that's so extraordinary about this White House compared to previous White Houses, it's not that there's internal disagreement about policy. That's pretty common. It's a good thing uh, inside an administration to fight out these issues internally. But Typically, an administration has that battle internally. It doesn't leak all the time to everyone uh, as it does in this White House. And then they make a decision. And they say, OK, this is the policy. Now let's put it on paper. Let's get it lawyered. Let's get it figured out and ready to go. And then they set up the rollout and they have surrogates ready to talk about it. None of that has happened in this White House. Uh, it's been a constant battle back and forth. And then Trump just decided when he was in that meeting with steel and aluminum CEOs that I'm ready to go. I'm going to announce it. Nothing ready to go. Same thing is happening this week on the formal rollout. Uh, and you have the 
fight still happening within the White House. That's why you get one person says definitely 3.30 today because they want it to be then and they you know are pushing it. Another person might uh, say, no, it's not happening today because they don't want it to happen. And that is just extraordinarily unusual for a White House to continue to have a policy fight like this play out in the public sphere and for to be so completely chaotic. Well, and I wrote a story about this yesterday. You know, this tariff thing has been really confusing and it has changed minute by minute. But Trump has had situations like this before where he has made policy by completely ignoring experts. And so, for instance, and he sort of let the experts fight and leak and come up with studies. And then he's ignored them and done whatever he's wanted. And we've seen this play out with uh, him pulling out of the Paris climate deal. We saw it play out with... uh, the ban that he put on military transgender military recruits. You know, lawyers were trying to slow walk him and say, we're going to study it. He just got pissed and didn't want to be micromanaged, and he tweeted it. Uh, you know, and so we have seen this, this pattern. Um, and the other thing I would make is that the one way in which this particular tariff announcement or this moment feels a bit more chaotic is that uh, Rob Porter, who was the staff secretary, uh, who left the White House amid allegations that he physically and emotionally abused his two ex-wives and raised a lot of questions about security clearances throughout the White House. His departure has made the policy and decision-making process a bit more chaotic because he was someone who was with the president all the time, who traveled with him, who was in charge of papers and briefings. And he kind of managed the flow of people coming to see the president to present his arguments, sort of the paper that the president would see about it. And without someone there sort of minding the store and making sure that people like Peter Navarro aren't sort of entering the Oval Office whenever they want to make their case, it's made things really crazy. And, and that's something that we're still grappling with in, in the media, I think. We just simply don't have the bandwidth to handle all this. I can. I was in Chicago last week and I flew back on Friday. I was catching up uh, when I got off the flight and I found two bombshell stories that had run in the few hours that I was on the plane. And they that wasn't even the top news by the time I landed. And that's something we just haven't reckoned no, with. And it is so overwhelming. I can't fig- figure yeah. out I yet. Mean, I feel like if I am away from my computer screen or Twitter for an hour to do an event or go on TV or whatever, I feel like I'm behind on eight different stories that are broken in that period of time. Like right now while we're doing this podcast, something crazy will have happened. <laughs> So uh, let me ask you about the story that you did uh, that we were talking about earlier, the why isn't Wall Street freaking out about Trump? And I'll start at the beginning. Initially, Wall Street was really worried about Donald Trump, right? Yeah, they were. Um, there were all those predictions before the election that if he were to win, the stock market would tank both in the U.S. and globally, that people were terribly afraid of his protectionism and his nativism and his just general lack of experience in government that we would just have this complete chaos. And, you know, it's not that Wall Street loved Hillary Clinton so much, but they kind of understood her. They knew what her policies were going to be, generally kind of center left. And nobody had any idea what Donald Trump was going to bring. All they saw was the Trump on the campaign trail, who was this incredibly chaotic figure. So that was the conventional wisdom going in, that Hillary Clinton, probably pretty good for stocks in the stock market. Donald Trump wins and everything's going to go to hell immediately. Everything I know about Wall Street, which is granted very little, uh, is that the street hates risk and uncertainty. And this is Captain Risk and Captain Uncertainty. Right. 
Yeah, well, okay. So there's a lot to unpack in here, but um, just to pick up on my last point, that was the conventional wisdom going in, and immediately on election night, and we detail this in the story, stocks did sell off. The Dow futures were off like a thousand points. Dollar was going down. Currencies around the world were going down, and then it all just stopped, uh, and it turned around and started to rise. And the day after the election, uh, I forget the exact number; it's in the story, but stocks were up a couple of hundred points uh, on the Dow, and there was this, I think, kind of collective realization that, you I mean, A, the world economy is doing well. We've got growth in the United States. We've got growth in Europe, a kind of synergy of growth that hasn't happened in a while. Corporate profits are good. So generally, the backdrop for markets is good, and they should be going up. Then there was like, okay, we got this Republican president. He's going to cut taxes. You know, Who knows? He's going to say all kinds of crazy stuff and be this weird reality TV star. But at bottom, he's going to cut corporate taxes. He's going to slash regulations. These things are good for stocks. And so people started to buy, and they started to think, well, we can discount Trump the risk, Trump the orange swan, crazy person, and just buy the fundamentals. Good U.S. economy, good global economy, tax cuts, deregulation. That's been the underpinning thing that has kept the stock market rising, even as Trump has torn up every norm in American governance. Okay, explain orange swan. Okay, orange swan. So everybody knows, or a lot of people know, that the black swan theory. The black swan theory is a unpredictable event in the global economy that tanks stock markets and sends everything uh, down. And it's something that people can't predict, a black swan event, like it's a, um, a war that starts or you know, a complete collapse of the mortgage market. These are the black swans. And um, the guy in the story I quote is a hedge fund manager in Florida called Doug Cass. Uh, and he wrote early on that Trump was the orange swan. He was this unknown figure in politics who's going to bring volatility back to markets and uh, terrify everybody on Wall Street and send stocks down. So he basically dubbed Trump the orange swan. Okay, so I can understand some of the theories that are for, for, for why the market seems stable. The, the idea that he governs like a garden variety Republican or uh, that it's actually the global economy that Wall Street is betting on. But there's another idea that you introduced in that piece that I thought was pretty fascinating but also kind of scaring. The, the idea or this theory that Trump actually does really – pose a massive systemic risk and the markets just can't see it or they can't price it. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that uh, it was an interesting idea to me that, that got brought up by – I had a bunch of conversations just on background or off the record with people who run trading desks, uh, with researchers, people who are in charge of kind of putting together Wall Street's research for the direction of the markets. And they said, you know, we can sit down and we can model – what's going to happen with the economy. We can model upcoming jobs reports, um, all of the various factors that go into deciding which stocks are going to do well, which stocks aren't going to do well. We have no idea how to model a president who tweets about his nuclear button. We have no way to model a North Korean missile strike. We have no way to model a impeachment crisis. So basically, they ignore it. They say, okay, we can't model this. We don't know what the risks really are. So we're just going to stick with what we know, which is the good stuff, the tax cuts, the regulation cuts, good economic growth in the US, and just leave the rest of it up to you know God, I guess. Like If it happens, it happens, but we can't deal with it. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh... That doesn't... I mean, it did scare me. It kind of scared the crap <laughs> out of me writing the story. Okay. Well, I think that's about all the time we have uh, for this segment. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming down from your uh, high perch from in New York. perch in, uh, in Wall Street. It was such a pleasure to be here with you, uh, Charlie, with you, Nancy. And I love our podcast, Synergy. And I will just plug Politico Money. If you really love tariffs and you love um, trade fights and all this weird stuff, sign up for Politico Money. And Nancy, thank you so much as ever. It's nice to have you back. Oh, I love coming on. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, now on to data point number two. One million 
16,347. That's how many people voted in the Democratic primary this Tuesday in Texas. That is a lot more than the last time uh, Texas Democrats voted in a midterm year. But it's still far less than the 1.5 million Republicans who voted. So that blue wave that Democrats have been talking about forever in Texas, well, it still hasn't come in. Let's get some context about that and some other takeaways from this week's voting from campaign pro reporter Elena Schneider, who was working until the middle of the night on Tuesday. Hi, Elena. Hey, how's it going? Doing well. So first, let's state the obvious here. Uh, This week's voting means the 2018 midterms are finally underway. Are you ready? I'm so excited. I'm so ready to finally have results. Yeah. So uh, let's get back to Texas then. The Democratic turnout figure. What do you take from that number? What do we we learn from that number? What we take from that number is that Democrats, like we've seen in Virginia and New Jersey and in state legislative special elections throughout 2017 and early 2018, Democrats are excited. They want to vote. They would literally be at their polling stations right now for November 2018 if they could. And that is certainly a good sign for Democrats. It means that they're going to participate in a midterm election, which is usually a difficult time for Democrats to turn out their constituencies. But for Texas specifically, it's not going to change anything. As you noted, still half a million more Republicans voted than Democrats. And it's still going to probably be a number number of years before we're going to see Texas turn even a purpley shade. So you and uh, our colleague Gabe DiBenedetti wrote a story, uh, uh, I think it was top takeaways from the Texas primary that uh, I might add did very well according to the metrics that I saw (laughs) yesterday. Um, Talk a little bit about uh, what some of those takeaways were. What did we learn? What else stood out? So a couple of things in the House races. So first, chief among them being that uh, Texas 7 was a race that I spent a lot of time in Houston covering and focused on. Wait a minute. Texas 7, let's get out of the weeds. Okay, talking I'm about sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Texas, Houston, suburban district. Western, that is- Western suburbs of Houston stretches out to, um, to Katy, Texas. Uh, it is uh, full of lots of interstate highways that I nearly killed myself on. Uh, super populous, well-educated um, district that is – Traditionally, a very Republican place. Mitt Romney won there by double digits. But under Trump, it voted for Hillary by about a point and a half. And that's pretty amazing. Like, that's, that's unprecedented That almost. swing is, that. is pretty unprecedented. In, in, a, in that in, district. In a four-year period, it's a, it just shows how much the Republican Party shifted under, under Donald Trump. So Democrats see these sorts of suburban districts like Texas 7 in Houston, like uh, Texas 32 in Dallas, any, any place that's on the, the, in suburban areas where they feel like people are turning against Trump, they don't like his style, they don't like the way he's doing things, that these are places they want to target to try and flip the House. So in this race, uh, the Democrats, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, decided they were going to try and intervene to help, you know, put their thumb on the scales to sort of direct what kind of candidate got into this race. There were four well-funded candidates. They dumped some opposition research on one of them to try and keep this woman out, Laura Moser, and uh, because they felt like she was too weak of a candidate. She had some baggage. Other Democrats thought she might be too liberal for a district that's only just now sort of maybe considering the Democratic Party. And she got into the runoff. And so it's it, it tells us a lot of things. One, that Democrats have a huge problem on their hands with primaries in which they have very little to no control uh, about keeping in or getting in their candidates that they want or keeping out candidates that they don't want. And it also shows that 
if a candidate has the party coming against them, that sometimes that, in fact, can elevate their position. She was able to raise $130,000 in the final week of the campaign, able to go up with more TV ads because the Democratic, the D-trip, as we call it here, uh, decided to get involved in that one. So that's a really interesting takeaway of how and in what ways they're going to be limited. The party will be limited in, in controlling primaries. One of the other uh, big themes, I think, from the election would be uh, how women candidates fared. I know going in, it was sort of a re- thought to be a record-breaking field of women candidates, most of them on the de- Democratic side, but not exclusively on the Democratic side. More than 50 about to sort of uh, provide a breakthrough moment in Texas, which uh, doesn't have a, a long history of, of electing women or, or a deep uh, history of electing women to Congress. Of course, they had Senator Hutchison a while back. But if you look at that 36-member House delegation, only three of them are women right now. So uh, how did women fare uh, in the primaries? Women did exceptionally well in the primaries. Uh, so Texas is probably going to get its first two Hispanic women to represent the state ever in Congress. So uh, Sylvia Garcia and uh, Veronica Escobar are both in are both in districts that are safely Democratic, and they're, they're probably going to be able to proceed pretty easily into Congress. So there's some history right there. And then on top of that, in, in, every, in almost all of the contested Democratic primaries, we saw women coming out on top. I had one uh, Democratic strategist tell me it's not a good time to be a white dude running for Congress right now. And I agree. Women up and down the ballot really, really did well in, uh, as we said, Texas 7 in Houston. There are two women advancing to the runoff there, Laura Moser, who we talked about, and Lizzie Pinnell Fletcher. In Texas 23, which is San Antonio, a traditional background, battleground, excuse me, that stretches from San Antonio all the way out to nearly El Paso, uh, Gina Ortiz-Jones. And we're not sure who her uh, opponent is going to be in the runoff, but it could be a, another woman. And then also in Dallas, Lillian Salerno was able to get into the runoff, too. So that right there, we've got uh, five five women who are going to be in these contested runoffs. Okay, give me one more takeaway about the Senate race, um, because I, I, th- I guess if you were to survey our listeners, you would find uh, very strong opinions about Senator Ted Cruz. You would have uh, lots of folks that really want to throttle Senator Cruz, and then you would have lots of folks that love him and and, uh, are devoted to him. So how did Cruz uh, fare and how did his opponent fare? So Cruz did uh, Cruz did well. He got once again a, a large share of uh, the Republican vote. Um, clearly, Republican primary voters are supportive of him, and uh, and what was really striking about the results was that as soon as he clinched the not, you know, goes forward as the Republican here, he released a radio ad attacking his Democratic opponent, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who also clinched uh, the nomination, and. Uh, Ted Cruz certainly was not was not a uh, fan of all of Donald Trump's tactics. Uh, certainly came under fire. He was lying, Ted, if I remember correctly, and he came out with a radio ad calling uh, Beto O'Rourke "liberal Robert." I remember reading stories. Liberal Robert wanted to fit in, so he changed his name to Beto and hit it with a grin. So obviously Beto goes by Beto, but his real name is Robert. And uh, so he decides to go with this sort of punchy nickname. So it's just an interesting look at how uh, Ted Cruz, for all of his criticism of Donald Trump and, uh, and, and you know, disgust in the way that he was sort of treated in the, in the 2016 election, has learned from his, from his opponent and has decided to take on these sort of silly nicknames as another way to sort of take your opponent down a notch or two. So tell me, uh, so I have a theory about uh, Cruz's performance and tell me if I'm a moron and way off the base or whether it makes any sense to you at all. 
I thought Cruz had a great night, meaning he won 80, roughly 85% of the vote, which in the modern era, when everybody's primaried and all the parties are fractured, is a major accomplishment, in a, in a, especially in a Republican Party. He wins 85%, crushes across the state, shows no regions of weakness anywhere when you look county by county. And this comes just two years after he was almost, you know, booed out of the convention for not endorsing President Trump. Many other politicians would not have been able to get past that and would have had a fractured party that held it against him. But they didn't among Texas Republicans. Is there anything there that makes sense? Am I right or do you think that I'm kind of overstating it? No, I think that he had an, a really, really good night. Uh, normally, you can expect an incumbent to get anywhere from north of 60 they feel comfortable with. Getting 80 is a significant chunk of the electorate. And in contrast, I don't know what the final number was, but O'Rourke, who granted is a uh, first-time statewide candidate, represents a smallish district in El Paso. Um, again, I think he was maybe north of 60 percent, but we should absolutely double-check those numbers. But uh, but he had more trouble coalescing his, his, uh, his primary block. And that's not to say that he won't be able to do that going forward. He hasn't gone up in significant television buys yet. People don't know him as well, so it may not be. Um, he's just people are less familiar with him. But it does show the contrast of how strong Cruz's brand is in his state. I sort of have a rough rule when it comes to interpreting primary results. I figure in your primary, you need to be over 65 percent. Like if you're looking at the number, what's a good number for, for an incumbent? It's your own party. If you can't pull two out of every three votes, you're in some degree of trouble. And the higher you are over 65 percent, the stronger you are. Right. Uh, and then I always figure if you're below 65 percent, and that's that's my rule, uh, you, you know, you're not you're not as safe as you need to be. And if you're in the 50s in a primary, if you're only pulling a little bit over one out of two of your own party, your own people, mm, you're probably being taken down sometime uh, in the near future. So let me ask you one last question. Take what you saw and the lessons you drew from Tuesday and – then apply it to the rest of the campaign season, to the primaries to come. Uh, what lessons are there for people that are trying to size up whether or not there is a democratic wave coming? It, uh, any signs one way or another? I think we are still seeing Democrats be excited and Democrats should take heart in that because in places like Texas, it's unlikely that you're going to turn that state, you know, statewide, turn it blue. But in these congressional districts, people are voting and participating at higher rates than they have in the past. But I do think another essential takeaway for Democrats running in these primaries right now is to look at three men who were some of the best funded you know, candidates in the in the cycle so far. You know, Alex Triantafilis raised a million dollars in his bid for this Houston race, Texas 7, and he came in fourth. Jay Hewlings was also a top fundraiser in Texas 23 in San Antonio. He came in fourth. And in Dallas, Ed Meyer, another person who was up with tons of TV ads, um, raised a lot of money. He also came in fourth. It's striking to see that these people who raised a ton of money were not able to break through. And I think it's a real warning to anyone out there who's just concerned about money. You also have to have a good story. And the old adage is Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in love. And I think that in some ways that Democrats still clearly want to fall in love with their candidates. And they're going to take someone with a interesting personal story over someone who maybe has a lot of money and is going to pop a lot of it on TV. Well, Alina, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for taking out all this time. I know you're completely fried after a really tough week. So thanks for coming in. No problem. It's a lot of fun. Our show is produced by Bridget Mulcahy and Michaela Rodriguez, with help this week from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is our able executive producer. Our researcher is Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, 
do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And we got a great review recently from a listener with the handle Matt Mortensen Photography. He said he loved the guests and that, quote, no one tops the wit, charm, and snark of Eliana Johnson. <laughs> that is so on the money. So thank you, Matt Mortensen. Thanks again for the review. And listeners, be like Matt and leave us a review. It makes a difference. We read them. And maybe you'll get a special shout out next week. Thanks again.